0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Newbox Network. I'm Galina Morenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Elena Esposito about the Newbox, Artificial Communication, How Algorithms Produce Social Intelligence. Algorithms that work with deep learning and big data are getting so much better, at doing so many things that, that makes us uncomfortable. In artificial communication, Elena Esposito argues that drawing this sort of analogy between algorithms and human intelligence is misleading. Esposito proposes that we think of smart machines not in terms of artificial intelligence, but in terms of artificial communication. Elena, welcome to the show. Hi, Kalina. Thanks a lot. I'm very happy to be here. So how are you? How has your week been?
1: Well, no, I'm in Bologna, in Italy now, and spring is beginning, or almost summer. That's of course very nice. Even if, uh, like everywhere, you know here in Europe, uh, it's it's a it's a hard time. It's a dark time. The war is here around the corner, so you cannot be really um, so serene without any negative thoughts.
0: Yeah, for sure, it's a really difficult times now. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, can you was. tell
0: us what do you do?
1: Well, I'm a sociologist, uh, and I'm well, my everyday life I'm a university professor, and I have this this sort of unusual um, situation that I'm half time in Italy, where I'm now in Bologna, and half time in Germany because I sort of I have a double affiliation to two universities, and um, yeah.
0: So how did you get interested in sociology? Oh, um, that's, we are going back some
1: decades. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I was a young, stuck in the university. As you say, I was really looking for something really exciting. And that's not the first theoretical exciting, challenging Difficult, complex, and really interesting and relevant also for our society. And uh, that's not what you first associate with sociology, being so exciting. But it was at the time, I was in Bologna in the 80s, and it was a really interesting, vibrant time, at at this decade in Bologna, which actually now it becomes sort of a mythical decade, people remember it. Uh, It was really... um, there was so much going on and uh, it was sort of a um, crucial point for the industry developments in Italy. And I studied, I happened by university professor, my my first degree, I did it with uh, Umberto Eco, uh, who was a great teacher. At the time, it didn't become the sort of a world um, famous intellectual. He was already very famous, but on a different level. And he was a great teacher. And so I became interested in questions related to language and media and uh, um, way to deal with that. Also, the beginning of thought about computers that, at the time. Um, and that was the beginning of the interest in this topic. Um, but then I, uh, I, um, so I moved from a more philosophical interest to a more um, sociological one, because I happened to meet um, well, the work and then of the person who became my, my um, PhD supervisor, which is not very well known in the English-speaking world, but it is extremely famous and highly reputed in Europe. And the name is Niklas, Niklas Luhmann, <coughs> who taught at the time in Germany. And so I moved from Bologna to Germany, and that, that's how I. Um, it happened to me that I uh, developed the same Topic the same interest in well, media, communication, uh, social e- e- effect of these things from a more sociological perspective, more than a semiotical one or a philosophical one, which so, so of course remains my background, but it's not what I'm doing now.
0: And what excites you about working in academia? Uh, well,
1: what excites me is. Uh, well, mostly there are some things that I find so exciting, actually. But uh, what, what I really find rewarding, and still, I'm, I love my job. Uh, is on one hand you can develop always new topics, and uh, and you, for example, in our my my field in the humanities, you don't even need that very much founding or or uh, machines and so on. So we are always if you can you are challenged at the best level that you can do on the topics that you find most interesting and that's really a big uh, um, advantage uh, because it is sort of a never-ending adventure in a sense that's one aspect and the other one is uh, well it's really nice to be in continuously in everyday contact with new young young generation and uh, students who are clever uh, informed Uh, updated and that's also very rewarding
0: and what would you say to our student listeners and also early career researchers
1: yeah yeah students and colleagues of course Uh, young people and of course also the the peers also that's we have in academia a strange structured but also continuously open social life because well Students and young career researchers, but also colleagues. You go to conferences and you always meet people who are unknown free, strangers, but with whom it's very easy to come in contact because of shared interest. So it's on the social life. It's
0: also really, um, really interesting. So your latest book is artificial communication. How algorithms produce social intelligence. So, can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Uh, Yeah, it is well, the topic of
1: uh, artificial intelligence and how to deal uh, from a sociological point of view with with this uh, uh, new trend is something that I I have been well working on since decades. I said already in the 80s, the question was there and uh, and it was at the time where the debate on well, the artificial features of uh, intelligence machine, or even what the what the debate was at the time, the idea they could have a consciousness, can become sentient uh, beings, and so on, um, was widespread and very interesting. And so I started thinking about that at the time, but. Uh, but in a sense, like testing some aspect of that. And uh, um, so I was I to say that I, but then I worked on other topics. I worked on fashion, I worked on memory and forgetting, I worked on probability calculus. But then in the last 10 years, I had the impression that uh, what's going on now with the new algorithm, with new development in digital um, media and digital techniques, Um, was ripe to deal with this uh, long topic from a different perspective. I have the impression that really we are at a turning point. And um, so I wanted to focus on that. And um, that's how the book came out.
0: So let's delve into some of the topics that you cover in your book. And we can start with the very basics. So can you explain what is artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's that is a basic question, but not an easy one,
1: because <laughs> it's something what people are talking about since I got, since computer began, since the end of the 50s. And the idea basically is uh, the hope or the possibility and sometimes the fear also that is possible to reproduce with machines, with computers, of course, and we're talking about this general purpose machines at the beginning of the time, uh, the feature of uh, human intelligence. And yeah, then the way how people understood the idea of intelligence, the of artificial reproduction of intelligence, developed a lot in the last, in these 70 years or yeah, almost 70 years of um, research on that. But the idea basically remains that the machine should, could, in different ways, uh, become intelligent uh, abstract intelligent, emotional intelligence, practical intelligence. There's that, a lot of uh, a different ways to understand it.
0: So there are different ways uh, that uh, we can sort of apply this terminology to different aspects. Are they all correct? Uh, they are all correct because um, what we saw also
1: is that this uh, debate about artificial intelligence in this long 50 years or so, uh, also focused on some aspect of, of another feature that was also not clear from the beginning, human intelligence. So thinking about the reproduction of intelligence in machines helped us to understand how many different kinds of intelligence exist um, well, computational intelligence, of course, but also yeah, emotional intelligence or um, ability to uh, move in an environment. There are many, many different features that we, without really being clear about that, um, what to produce with machine and uh, we attribute it to the, in, well, the ability to be intelligent by human beings.
0: So, what are some of the drawbacks of how we are currently thinking about the artificial intelligence?
1: Yeah, what struck me from the very beginning, when people talk about it, is that, uh, of course, the idea of artificial intelligence is compelling and is fascinating, but if you think about it as a metaphor, as a research program, it's sort of strange, because uh, we want to reproduce with machines something, of which we already know very, actually know very, very little. Because the idea from the very beginning was to reproduce not only the mind of human beings, but in a sense also, as now people talk about neural networks, the brain. So the working of the hardware that um, in human beings produces our intelligent features. And we still know very, very little. Uh, about the brain, the brain is a fascinating mystery, also for neurophysiologists. And what intelligence is? Uh, well, the debate about artificial intelligence here um, showed also that we also ve- know very little about that. What intelligence is? So, in a sense, it's a strange metaphor. Hmm.
0: So, what does artificial communication mean? We uh, yeah, had the impression that um,
1: to understand how machines are working now because now this machine with a new kind of algorithm with the labels are machine learning and big data so since 15 years more or less um, machines are working a different way and uh, they are um, well they can do amazing things, they can communicate with us, they can write books, uh, they can p- p- paint pictures, they can um, compose music and so on, uh, but it seems to become more and more clear to me uh, that they do that, not because they finally are, have become able to, to be intelligent, but because uh, the way of programming them has changed and the machine, in a sense, the programmer themselves don't try anymore to emulate human intelligence. In a sense, I would say this machine has become able to do these apparent intelligent things, not because they have become intelligent, but because they don't try to be intelligent anymore. And that's what brought me to propose to shift from the metaphor of intelligence to the method of communication. The idea that these machines, these performances are due to the fact that machines are beginning to learn to communicate with us. And that seems to me the
0: new really exciting phenomenon. So concept like algorithm seems to play quite a central role in all of this. So can you explain what exactly is an algorithm? Yeah, yeah. It is a, yeah, an
1: algorithm is also a fashionable word now. And yeah, this, but uh, in a sense, what the way we are talking about algorithms since like 20 years is relatively unprecise, but so established that also I use this idea, because algorithms, by themselves, are something which is not new at all. Uh, the word, the idea, comes from the 17th century, and in general, well, the in beginning of computerization, one talked with, in the 50s, one talked about computers, but the computers work with algorithms. Algorithms are, are a sequence of steps that can be followed in a certain order, and come to um, um, some result. In a sense, also a uh, chicken, a uh, kitchen, sorry, a recipe, a recipe about the menu so is also an algorithm. You have a, certain, a certain series of steps to follow and you have certain result. So, by themselves, that's nothing mysterious. Uh, well, computer always work with programs that are series of steps. So, there are algorithms, have always been algorithm, algorithms. But uh, uh, since... Uh, 15, 20 years, the idea of algorithm sort of shifted because uh, the um, well, programs in programming and the data available produce new kind of algorithms that are really different from the previous one. That's why I think that's... A, the way we talk about algorithms now is that the new thing are not necessarily the algorithms, but the specific kind of machine learning algorithms. The fact, that the algorithm now seems to be able to learn by themselves more and more autonomous and that they use the so-called big data, a different kind of data uh, that are, also, in a sense, the raw material that the algorithms are using.
0: And many of us heard um, these uh, things that algorithms control our lives nowadays. And I was uh, wondering, do we always know what goes into those algorithms, especially, as you say, with the neural networks? Do we always know what are the workings? Well,
1: no. That's uh, the scary, challenging, but also fascinating aspect of the algorithms because uh, we don't know. Well, the point is, we Well, me, myself, I'm not a programmer, so I cannot program myself. So lay people, but also many programs themselves um, have to face a deep level of transparency in the machine because these new algorithms, the advanced called deep learning algorithms are able to learn by themselves. They decide themselves what to learn. But in the most advanced one, they also de- decide by themselves how to learn and in which direction. And the, the designer themselves, in many cases, cannot understand how the machine is working. And that's of course, is a huge challenge. But not only. You talk about what we know about how the machine works. And there's another level of transparency, because these machines, very often, are fed or they use the so-called big data, which are data which they find most cases on the web, and they are produced from many different heterogeneous sources. And the data themselves are not controlled, selected, cleaned, uh, organized as the previous data that were used by probability procedures. This new algorithm. Use different kind of sort of dirty, not controlled data, which are an additional element of uh, um, well complexity, but also of possible dangers. Uh, there's a lot of uh, right debate about uh, how data and algorithm cells can be biased. They can be produced um, well unequal results uh, and uh, unfair results, which are partly. Corresponded to the intention of the programmer, partly, basically uncontrollable.
0: So, as we have these technologies contributing more and more to our everyday life, can you give us a few of your favorite examples? Oh, well, that, that's really difficult because uh, uh, when well, you say that, uh, um,
1: well, uh, there are some examples of things that we everybody use in everyday life. Um, yeah. See the phone, Google, uh, Google Maps. Um, this also the sensor around that well, we are not even aware. Um, but also fascinating are the ways the, in which technologies work with algorithms, with this uh, controlling procedure uh, of which we are not even aware of. But, but the favorite ones, you know, we sociologists have difficulty in choosing what's the favorite, and the less favorite, because well. All these phenomena for us are, first of all, interesting. <laughs> Even the negative ones, in a sense, are interesting, and so...
0: So what would be your favourite positive ones then? And then we can go to negative ones.
1: <laughs> positive is also possibly the negative one. I'm fascinating. I'm a generation that still remembers a world where we are not connected communicatively with other the people all the time. And that's amazing, interesting, and of course terribly scary.
0: This is also a feed into this concept of uncanny valley, with the sometimes when we don't really understand what's happening or it uh, strike strikes slightly too close home. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> that is an interesting phenomenon, but um,
1: well, well, the way the concept is used, uh, or the way I know it, is a uh, well, especially on robots, uh, or also, it came with robots, but also in general with algorithms. That we are trying since decades uh, to build machines uh, or um, procedures that are as possible closer to our behavior. But uh, when they do it, we are terribly scared, or we don't feel at ease. For example, the robots, the people, the, if robots now, the people uh, building them are, are, of course, very clever and very experienced. If the robot is too similar to human beings, uh, people don't feel at ease. It says this, um, so that's why they make the strange features with the strange, strange eyes and strange faces that actually are not really similar to ourselves. Or, even if you find that, that uh, um, a program is uh, producing itself, communication contents uh, is able to talk with us, is fascinating. You know the, the idea that people can also get in love with the um, uh, digital systems. On um, that, uh, well, that should be the goal of these technologies that are presented. But when we face it, the feeling is a. Uh, um, really not um, comfortable.
0: Oh, yes, for sure. And this, this last thing that you mentioned, it's really disorienting in some way when you, when you understand that it's not a living thing talking to you, you know, but algorithm. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, but that's
1: where the idea of artificial communication comes in, uh, because I think that a lot of this uh, discomfort that we have, and worries, and a lot of the debates about the so-called scared and um, debated um, singularity, the idea that the machine may take control and, uh, um, well, be more intelligent than human beings, as a competition, at the moment the machine becomes more intelligent than human being, something terrible is expected to happen, I think it's simply misguided in many cases. I don't think that machines are good in some way or that no, there are no worries. But the, the competition between human beings and machines is not what worries me first because I think the machines are not intelligent, don't want to be intelligent. So that's not a real problem. What we are producing are is a network that, uh, um, first of all, makes our communicative abilities much more um, well, powerful.
0: So all of these technologies, um, of course, they're not living, as we, as we understand cognitively, but they are really contributing to the organization of our knowledge. So can you tell us what kind of ways uh, we sort of use to organize it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe I start from a
1: relatively simple example that uh, is... Uh, um, common in the debate. Uh, take, for example, this uh, um, the new um, translator programs um, like a, a Deep Translator, Google Translators, so on. Uh, they are algorithms and uh, they are now, I remember a couple of decades ago, we there already were some form of automatic translation, which was Sort of useful, but ridiculous. It made so many mistakes, the texts were not useful, and so on. And now, some um, of these products produce excellent texts. Of course, you correct some word or another, and sometimes they are funny, misunderstanding, but in most cases, the result is, uh, is ex- really extraordinarily good. And um, there is one of the point where I see the difference because if you talk with the programmers, it becomes clear that they change the attitude from reproducing intelligence to producing communication. Um, until uh, 20 years ago, they tried uh, to teach the machine the rules of the language as a human being would learn it, that uh, the rules of the grammar of the language uh, to put a, like, a dictionary or a possible broader dictionary of the words. So, The idea that the more the machine was able to do what we do when we translate, the better it would work. And now, what they are doing with these machine learning algorithms, is uh, that we have have translator programs which have been produced by programmers. For example, a program translating from um, English to Chinese, for example. The programmers don't know Chinese. And the machine itself doesn't know Chinese at all. It doesn't know English. The machine doesn't understand the text, but just finds in the huge amount of of, of data that are available on the web, patterns, examples that allow to transpose, translate a text from a language to the other without understanding what it means, without understanding the rules, but producing a very useful um, product. And that's what I'm... Understand the example. Understand with the shift from uh, intelligence to communicative capability.
0: So basically, it's not really necessary then to have this deep understanding of something in in terms of algorithmic translation, as as you say, uh, for for for, um, the program to be able to perform well, isn't
1: it? That's what I mean. I think it seems that in many cases, and uh, some programs which are working, or uh, most of probably working with uh, which were machine learning, say the machine doesn't have to understand. It's actually too heavy a burden. Claim that the machine should understand what the text it produces, the text it works with, sort of make it much too complex without uh, real advantages. The machine has to find patterns, correlations, structures that allow to perform as if it understood the text. But
0: understanding by itself is not required. So if we touch on uh, the other uh, very tangible example, uh, like image search, uh, for example, online or image recognition. So how do do algorithms feed into that?
1: Oh, that would be um, uh, also another example. Um, If you see... Uh, how this program works. For example, the the famous image of a cat. Uh, We, if we're to recognize uh, the images of animals like cats, we have some features that we find, like the the ears or the, like, the, or something, and we have a sort of an idea of a cat, which we try to find in the different uh, realization bigger, smaller, um, gray, uh, white, and so on. And the algorithm does something completely different. It calculates aspects which are completely not understandable for us, like regularity in, um, in distance between some features. So it finds out something which for us, in many cases, is completely not understandable. But the result is an is amazing ability to recognize images, not only of cats, of animals, but as we know, of human faces, and uh, so all this uh, image recognition, um, very powerful um,
0: programs. Yeah, and that's a great transition. To my next question is actually connecting now our human part, our human side to all of this. So, how do human rights play into this?
1: Well, human rights are one aspect. Human ability, are, if I may, is a previous one they have to consider because, uh, well, the shift from intelligence to communication doesn't mean that human intelligence becomes irrelevant or that human beings are not needed in producing new forms of information. Because that's where this big data and the data that the algorithm farms on the web come in. Because the algorithms became able to learn learn more and more and to work in this amazing, powerful way only at the time when they could access the data that we, human beings, produce on the web, after the so-called Web 2.0, the participatory web. Then we, we every, everybody, each of us, produce a lot of data with our behavior every day on, on the web or otherwise with GPS or moving streets where there are sensors recording our behavior or surfing the web or participation in social media and so on. And these are the materials which are in here intelligent because we produce them with our intelligence, with our ability to um, move in the world. And these are the material that the machine uses in order to produce something that allowed them to behave as if they were intelligent. So without the contribution of human beings, machines would not be able to communicate in this intelligent way.
0: So in a way, they, they actually need us as well. <laughs> Of course, they need us,
1: absolutely. We need a machine, but in a sense, what the machine gives to us is a, a re-elaborated version of the intelligence that we, human beings, put into
0: the system. So once our information is out there, that's a really a, a sort of a pertinent sentiment going around, it's really difficult to get it back, or it's even impossible. So what about the right to be forgotten, basically, on the Internet? Yeah,
1: that's uh, that. It was a big debate in the uh, twenty uh, fourteen, where in Europe uh, the uh, European Parliament, the Court of Justice decided that, that we have a regulation to protect the right of individuals will be forgotten. But it's it's a, it's an amazing another of these amazing shifts because uh, for millennia, for us human beings, the big problem has always been. To remember, to be able to remember, to keep the information, because you know our our intelligence, in a sense, our mind. Uh, well, the difficult thing is to remember, not to forget. If you do nothing, naturally we forget. And we have all these techniques, uh, like mnemonic techniques, but also books, in a sense, are all tools that help us not to lose information, to keep it, to be able to remember. And now with the web. The entire frame seems to be upside down because um, what is done by itself, without any effort, without any uh, work from our side, is that things are remembered, not they are forgotten. We have to decide explicitly if you want to erase something, which means forget. For example, think about your emails. Usually, one keeps everything. There's no reason to erase things. So normally, everything was is. Is remembered and it requires decision and work in order to have something forgotten, which changed completely the the attitude. That's why the regulation of the right to be forgotten became needed because normally the information are not lost, they are there and they are there not only as uh, um, the right, uh, the legal um, frame requires of some criminal acts and so on that should be maybe forgotten. But everything is there of everyone since we are moving on the web. So what a person in his childhood or his teenager years does on the web remains there if you don't have some regulation and can sort of change, limit, uh, burden our life after decades.
0: Yes, for sure. And uh, like you say, children, but also other um, individuals who might be in a vulnerable position. So it's really difficult to know what exactly you can put out there.
1: Yeah, and in a sense, is in a vulnerable, vulnerable position because we don't know in the present what we want, in the, we want in the future. So it's always difficult to see. We do something which is completely harmless now, and it can be become a vulnerability or an expert that we don't know about in
0: five months,
1: five years, 50 years.
0: And this concept of artificial communication actually, uh, it helps me think about it in a slightly different way as well, uh, rather than uh, saying general artificial intelligence. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it can help.
1: Also because I think it can help to find a solution for this mystery because it's not clear how you can um, block uh, forgetting, because or, or increase forgetting, in a sense, because we have a lot of techniques for increasing remembering, but if you have to reinforce uh, or increase forgetting, you immediately see that's a paradox, because to forget something, you have to focus your attention on that and then cancel it, which is sort of paradoxical. It's very, very difficult to have a technique for forgetting. But if you refer to communication the solution seems to be a little more plausible because uh, um, there are techniques in communication to uh, reinforce forgetting that don't work in the same way. The algorithm works in a different way. The algorithm can do something which is actually an equivalent of forgetting because they can produce so many data, so many noise and contradictory or diverse information that at the end it's so difficult to find the information that the people does not want to have remembered. And so, practically, there lies an equivalent of forgetting.
0: So, what's in store for the future of artificial communication? Uh, well, uh, the question is how um, the, this
1: shift from intelligence to Communication can be realized, but I have the impression that in many cases, to understand what's going on, my experience is, if you um, try to think about not reproduction of intelligence, but something that in a complex way affects the way we communicate with each other or the information that can circulate among us, even if they are produced by a human being, but they are produced through, through different um, procedures, or technical procedure. I think many questions become more understandable. For example, uh, one aspect that I find fascinating also how predictions become more and more relevant. Because in many cases, if you have something that you cannot if you cannot understand, you cannot use it to explain what's going on, but you can still use it to predict if the, the information is reliable. And many projects on the web now are shifting towards a, more and more important role of prediction.
0: Yes, predictions play a huge role, uh, don't they, in, in our society in general, from the weather to stock markets. So do you see that algorithms are going to play like, basically the main role in these areas? Well,
1: this, uh, people are talking about the form of algorithmic prediction, which is actually different from the forms of prediction we are used to too, because uh, when we think about prediction we usually think about probabilistic procedure we have uh, we gather data and use this data to face the uncertainty of the future so um they, you know, something is we don't know what will happen but we know for example think about um, getting ill or a possible disasters or a possible positive um, stock market behaviors and we have an idea that we are not sure, but might come, but we know that it's going to happen in 70% of the case or 30% and so on. And that's how we, in sense, we prepared for the future, our form of dealing with prediction. Algorithms work in a completely different way. And uh, they don't have probabilities. They claim to tell you not what will happen for an average of the persons or for an average of the development. They claim to give you to, to find out a pattern and tell you what will happen, for example, to a singular person. Not how many people will get sick, but uh, uh, if a per- particular person, with a, with, well, me or my cousin or any of you, uh, can become sick in five years, of what? And that's a completely different way of dealing with uncertainty of the future.
0: And It's actually a bit more intuitive way for a human as well because we're really bad with dealing with uncertainty.
1: Yeah, sure, but that's but this, um, it's intuitive, it's attractive, but of course, remains uncertain from another from another point of view. And even if this, um, prediction were really reliable, and we are never sure about that, the question is. How can we combine this individualized prediction in a social structure? For example, think about medicine. Our medical systems is prepared not to deal with my particular idiosyncratic um, health development, but the idea is to offer drugs and treatment that work for everyone. But since each of us is different, how can you have a health system that takes care of all this completely idiosyncratic different uh, um, health
0: developments so now thinking about the bigger picture so why should we be thinking about these topics and researching all of these questions and how will it uh, benefit our society
1: well i think we have no choice <laughs> That's, I think there's something then, uh, so the, I advise that I'm a sociologist there's something which is going on and uh, we have to try and some, we have a lot of benefits we see it already now uh, well one of the fields I'm talking about the medical fields uh, we have procedures that are really um, enormous developments but of course have a lot of, of uh, possible challenges and risks and threats and so on and and uh, um, I would I would say the algorithms of new devices are good, artificial communication is good or bad I don't know, but it's something different and uh, what I want to do is try to understand what's going on and try to prepare to be prepared to some possible for we talked about bias, inequalities, uh, reproduction of uh, um, well, unfair. Behaviors. That's what we have to be prepared for. We have to prepare for something for which our present legislation or our society, our political system are not prepared. And then we have positive experts and some also negative one, but we have to try to understand what in the new development are different from uh, uh, the structure we, are, we already have.
0: So are you optimistic then that we will be able to uh, sort of manage all of these technologies for the good of everybody?
1: That's a really difficult question. Because what well, something which I'm worried is uh, um, think about the political system and that's the development now towards more and more, uh, well, people talk about um Fake news and populism and polarization, and so on. There's something which is clearly connected with the role of algorithms. Uh, our communication, the social media, and the way how things are produced have a different shape from what are at the base of our modern democratic society. And it's not easy to find a way to preserve the warranties of our well live together in such different conditions. I won't say that's impossible. But it will be difficult.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it's so important to be raising these questions and having these discussions as well, isn't it? Sure, sure, sure. And that's a lot going on. I mean, I there are a
1: lot of interesting um, development. And uh, what, um, what should be a little, uh, giving something to think, that the developers are very much often um, guided by the technology because the programmers and the People in technology are developing this system, which are really running and running become more and more able to do things. And we just follow that. The theoretical reflection on this uh, new development is sort of lagging behind. And uh, I have the impression we need more theoretical reflection on uh, on the technologies.
0: And what discoveries during your writing process and your research for your book, uh, artificial communication surprised you the most? Well, but it's sort of a
1: basic easy thing. But what surprised me most is how the idea of the um, centrality of human beings is still there. Uh, that how the, the debate on the new development is never, nevertheless, even if the machine are getting more and more powerful and uh, uh, and well uh, um, mm-hmm. able to do things that the the idea still remains how we are competing with them, with the role of human beings, even in many cases not the central one. For example, uh, in the field of artificial intelligence, something which keeps coming up again and again is something like the Turing test. Uh, The idea, uh, a test was proposed by um, Alan Turing 100 years ago. uh, who is meant to um, test whether uh, a machine is intelligent uh, by checking if a user of the machine understands is aware to be interacting with the machine and not with the human being. If the user doesn't realize that they are talking with the machine, the machine is meant to be intelligent, which is a very, very strange idea because uh, um, what it measures is of course not the intelligence of the machine. but on the term what they're saying, the ability of the machine to communicate with us. And why should we be particularly interested in that? Well, everybody is now communicating with bots every day. People talk with Siri or people without even knowing it. People playing video games online or booking um, well tickets and so on. We interact every day many, many times with bots and we don't. But we don't notice it. The machine passed the Turing test every t- many times every day, and in many cases we don't even care. But still, the idea that knowing if a human being is intel is uh, is there is meant to be something relevant. So detached from the reality of what's going on.
0: Do you ever get fearful that artificial intelligence going to be to get so intelligent that they're going to rise against the humanity?
1: No, I don't. I, I, well, I, I'm, very, I'm worried that many things can go wrong. I would say it's going to be well in, in any case. I, that's, uh, I'm not optimistic by itself. But the idea that the machine become more intelligent than us doesn't worry me at all, because they are not intelligent.
0: Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, do we have the representation of AI in our popular culture a little bit often, then? Or maybe do you have your favorite AI from the film? Um,
1: well, no, not really. <laughs> That's, uh, the thing, well, there are some very clever things that are of course popular. Um, think about she or her. What was it? The, 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 I don't know how to it in the original title. With the, what was this? Yoking Phoenix interacting with the operative system, which of course the fascinating voice of Scarlett Johansson. It was clever as an idea, but I don't think it's realistic. So, at first, it's entertaining, but it doesn't seem to me to uh, really. Well, I think that the imagination we have about the um, about artificial intelligence is in many cases disconnected to what's really going on in the field?
0: Well, I'm glad that we won't have the (laughs) uprising of machines (laughs) anytime soon, at least.
1: (laughs) Not in the form we expect, in a sense. But, you know, the development in this field, um, almost regularly uh, disappoint the expectation and the real... um, powerful or important developments were often often unexpected, but nobody predicted the email or even the social media were not predicted in this form. We expect something to happen and then, luckily or not, often the
0: technological development takes another way. Well this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Uh, yeah, you might
1: have uh, perceived it a little. I'm very fascinated in prediction. And now I'm leading um, well, a five-year-long project financed by the European Research Council with the name The Future of Prediction, uh, where we try to observe how the forms of prediction are changing when algorithms are used. And the subtitle is a Social Consequences of Algorithmic Forecast." In insurance, medicine, and policing, that's a much more empirical, concrete uh, project where we try to, esp- well, we want to explore uh, how the new form of algorithmic prediction impact in field of our society where still rely pretty much on probabilistic uh, forms of prediction. Think about insurance, or well, how precision medicine uh, is realizing different form of prediction. Oh, that sounds, sounds great. We are enjoying it very much, and for the field, where at the moment there are the most surprising developments, is the one which seems less fascinating. Well, well police, of course, you know, predictive policing, where algorithm claim to predict was, uh, who was committing a crime before we committed, is also fascinating. But insurance seems to attract, and well, it's also sort a of dry field, not a really adventurous one. But there are amazing um, developments going on already there. For example, the idea that uh, you can have individualized risk prediction, and the algorithm tells you when, who is going to have a car crash or get sick and so on in advance. And for the insurance, it seems like a great opportunity until the people of insurance realize that if that were possible, insurance would, be, would break down, would not be possible anymore. Because the mechanism of insurance relies on the fact that we don't know precisely who. Will get sick or will have a car crash. Therefore, everybody is is available to pay a little insurance fee that, in many cases, paid for nothing but protects everyone. The the project we say uh, the resource of uh, um, of these technologies is shared uh, uncertainty the idea that nobody knows the future and the other also don't know it. And that's why we deal with that together. And individualized predictions, like the one the algorithm can provide, would make the system completely impossible.
0: Harvesting the power of algorithm for good. Yeah, in a sense, yes. <laughs> and what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
1: Yeah, my book will be um, released, or uh, it's already, already now, so the official release date is uh, May 24th by MIT Press, with the title Artificial Communication. And, um, yeah, of course, it can be found on the web or can be found in the old-fashioned um, bookstores, which are also a, a nice place to visit, to have uh, inspiration for other interesting things to read.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.
1: It was a really, really interesting conversation.